Our reading today comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, again, welcome to uh, Christ Community. I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, I had a great joy of serving on the teaching team here. And uh, we want to wish all moms, again, a special happy Mother's Day. So glad you're here, and uh, we're delighted that you have chosen Christ Community this morning. Well, I don't know if you saw this, but a recent New York Times uh, op-ed article was entitled, Something That Caught My Attention. It was entitled this, Don't Let Facebook Make You Miserable. Uh, It was written by an economist, and uh, this is how it begins. It's now official. Scholars have analyzed the data and confirmed what we already knew in our hearts. Social media is making us miserable. Now, the author of the article goes on to describe where this misery is coming from because there is a glaring difference between the life we portray on social media and the life we really live. Whether it's Facebook or Instagram, the pressure to look a certain way, to project the right image, to put our best foot forward to airbrush our lives is wreaking havoc on us. One of the finest books to come out in the last couple years, written by Sherry Turkle, was a New York Times bestseller. It's entitled Reclaiming Conversation. The subtitle is The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Sherry Turkle also has her moment with social media. She writes, social media instead of promoting the value of authenticity, it encourages performance. Instead of teaching the rewards of vulnerability, it suggests that you put on your best face. And instead of learning how to listen, you learn what goes into an effective broadcast. It seems to me that perhaps the most glaring irony of our time is that while we spend increasing energy puffing ourselves up, we actually find ourselves increasingly empty. Cultural critic and friend of Christ community, Oz Guinness, makes this amazing observation. He says, preoccupation with style or image is a major ingredient of the emptiness of modern culture. Now, whether it is social media, or the clothes we wear, or the right words we say, 
or the successes and accomplishments we broadcast to others, isn't it true? Whether we are younger or older, wherever we come from this morning, that we go to great lengths to look good to others, to seek their approval, and yes, to hear their applause. So much so that a burgeoning industry of our time is the image industry. And if you work in that industry, bravo to you. But the image industry helps politicians and celebrities and corporate leaders present the best possible appearance to the public and their constituency. It's a big industry. Because as a culture, we are obsessed, it seems to me, with projecting the right image of ourselves into the world. But a crucial question confronts each of us individually and as a culture in this moment. Are we projecting the right image or are we becoming the right people? Are we focused on looking good or actually becoming good? Now, as a church family, we are in the midst of a series we have entitled Vices and Virtues. And we've been exploring this matter with, well, a sense of trepidation or trepidation. You say that? Last week, we looked at the vice of envy. Wow, that busted us, didn't it? This morning, are you ready? We are going to look at the next vice, the vice of vain glory. My hunch is that we should pray for just a moment before we open God's word. So let's pray. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see we are loved more than we can imagine and that we are sinful more than we can fathom. So give us a level of humble transparency before you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you this question. Are your life passions and priorities Focused on looking good or becoming good? See, to help each one of us wrestle with this important question, I'd like us to address the three things in sequential order. The first is the vice of vainglory. The vice of vainglory. Secondly, the virtue of humility. The virtue of humility. And third, the discipline of secrecy. So we want to unpack the vice of vainglory, the virtue of humility, and the discipline of secrecy. The vice of vainglory. The word vainglory we don't use very much today, which is an indicator of the tragedy of its loss. It simply means, in the most literal sense of a combination of two words, empty glory. The vice of vainglory is really at its heart about looking good to others. Like all the vices we will explore, the very root of every vice is pride. But there is a distinct nuance how this emerges in vainglory. Pride actually wants to be better than others. Vainglory, on the other hand, wants to appear better than others, whether we are better or not. Now, whether vainglory is birthed in our lives out of arrogance that we think we are better than others, or often 
perhaps more common, out of our own insecurity that others will discover we're not all we appear to be. Bottom line, being glory lives and breathes for the approval and applause of others. Now, there's reasons why this vice of being glory is so intoxicating and enticing. Because it is a corruption of actually something we were designed to do and be. Something really good. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, the first book, we read that human beings, we have been created in God's image. We were created with glory in mind. And as image bearers of God, we are uniquely designed among all of creation to reflect the glory of our creator. The psalmist, Psalm 8, who was written by David, in a brilliant prayer says this. David says, what is man or humans, what are humans that you, God, are even mindful of them? Yet you have made them a little lower than the angels, and notice what David says, and crowned him with glory and honor. As image bearers of God, you and I are the sparkling crown of creation. In other words, we have been given as human beings a unique and prominent place on creation's stage. But when sin entered the world, and the cosmic rebellion was unleashed on this planet, we sought glory for ourselves, and we tried to upstage God. The heart of the matter is this. The problem with vainglory is not the applause we seek, but who we seek the applause for. who we seek the applause for. It is not the size of the stage we find ourselves on, but rather how big we see ourselves on that stage. Rather than living for the applause of God, we live for the applause of others. One of my favorite current TV shows. Maybe you're a fan, anybody a fan of The Voice here? It's very popular in ratings. And if you've not seen it, or if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, it's like, one thing I love about this show is it gives kind of the who's that of the world the opportunity to be the who's who. A lot of talent that hasn't been discovered all of a sudden is on stage for the whole nation to see. And it's kind of fun to see them get this opportunity, but you know, things begin to change when the lights are bright, the stage is bigger, and all of a sudden, the challenge is that vainglory begins to overwhelm them. Have you noticed in the candidates? And that's my concern about it. Vain glory finds a great place on the stage and the applause of the crowd. But I want to say, as I said last week, that vain glory, like other vices, this one here is particularly blinding, I think, to religious people. It's not that vain glory is not a part of irreligious people. But there's a certain blindness, I think, in religiosity and vain glory. So, as I said last week, I know something about religious people. I'm one of them. I'm a pastor. And let me tell you, pastors struggle a lot with this vice. Maybe you knew that. We can be very good at hiding it, of course, the longer we've done this. But those closest to us 
can see it when it slithers out. We can take way too much credit for things, for a sermon that is applauded by a congregation or a church that is growing. Vainglory affects pastors and Christian leaders no matter what the size of the church they serve. In other words, you, you don't have to be a very big pond, right? Or have a big pond to be a very big frog. And croak a lot about yourself. The more prominent the pastor or church becomes, have you noticed? The tendency is the more celebrity status emerges. The church, rather than called by its name, is often referred to as so-and-so's church. In the last few years, I have encountered the green room. Do you know what the green room is? If you don't, let me tell you. I'll call it the vainglory room, okay? The green room is a very special place with all the accoutrements of elitism and status that plenary speakers in large venues are ushered into before they go on stage. And uh, it's a strange place. It does things to people as TV cameras and stages do. See, whether it's looking into a camera or walking on a lit stage, pastors are all too often eager to bask in the limelight of people's applause and approval. In order to maintain celebrity and prominent status, power and influence, and cultural relevance, Compromise or dilution of the clear teaching of God's holy word often follows. Being glory is one of the fastest tracks to moral compromise, doctrinal heresy, and false teaching. Jesus knew this. Of course, brilliant. Jesus did in his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, if you've read the New Testament. Jesus addresses the vice of being glory head on like no other vice. Perhaps Jesus had first century green room, green room in mind, I think. He calls religious leaders on the carpet for their image building, showy ways, and good things, acts of prayer, almsgiving, fasting, but done for the motive of impressing others in applause. In fact, the New Testament has one of the most shuddering stories in the first century church of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Have you read about them? Who, out of vainglory and seeking the applause, expressed their philanthropy and a generous gift to the church. But it's filled with deception and hypocrisy and they are dealt with in the most severe way. Now whether you, you consider yourself a Christian here this morning or not, I can tell you this without a shadow of a doubt. If that vice has you in its lock, you will inevitably live a hypocritical life. See, vainglory, like all our vices, promises happiness to feel good about ourselves, to be significant and secure, but it delivers despair. Because the more we puff ourselves up, the more empty we become. So are we looking good or becoming good? What do our heart motivations say? What do our words reveal to others? What do our life priorities tell us? 
See, if we are going to focus on becoming good rather than looking good, becoming virtuous people rather than people of vice, we need to confront head-on the vice of being glory. And we do it pursuing the virtue of humility. The vice of vainglory, the virtue of humility. The virtue of humility is portrayed in Jesus' earthly mother, Mary, in amazing ways. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke's gospel. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, in the New Testament, chapter 1. Here in chapter 1, the gospel writer Luke describes Gabriel's amazing angelic visit to young, maybe 16-year-old, 70-year-old Jewish girl, teenager named Mary. He announces to her that she's going to become pregnant with the long-awaited Messiah. And Mary, of course, is just blown away. She's wondering, how is this possible? But with a bit of angelic resurgence and encouragement, Mary responds in verse 38 with these words. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done according to your word. See, rather than disbelieving God, Mary chooses to trust God's word and submit to God's will no matter what for her life. Trusting God and submitting to God's will is the very foundation of the virtue of humility. See, on Mother's Day, we rightly celebrate moms. And Mary's role here as a mom in bringing Jesus into the world in the grand redemptive story we celebrate. But we also celebrate who she was as a virtuous woman. See, there is considerable debate, theological debate, in different Christian traditions about Mary. But one thing that is not debated is her virtue of humility. There is not a whiff of vain glory in this young, precious girl's life. We see it in what is called, from the Latin, magnificat. This virtue of humility on display in verses 46 through 49. Let me read that again. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed or favored. For who is mighty, for he who is mighty, has done great things for me. Notice how she is, and holy is his name. Can you imagine being a young Jewish teenage girl in the first century and being given one of the most prominent places on the stage of redemptive history in bringing the Messiah into the world. And there's no hint of Mary in any way seeking to upstage God in his glory. Zilch. And she has some big challenges ahead socially. There's not a heady bone in her body. Mary points to God's glory and not herself. See, the virtue of humility, as it's been so wisely said, is not so much thinking less of ourselves. It is thinking less about ourselves. Mary clearly models this. An amazing picture of humility, Mary clearly is. But Mary points us to Jesus. Jesus himself is the ultimate example of the virtue of humility. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus, imagine this, incarnational atoning mission to leave the throne room of God itself and arrive in a Bethlehem cave with animals and animal excrement around him. 
What a contrast from the triune throne of God as the exemplifying incarnational reality of the virtue of humility. Philippians chapter two, Paul says, who though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but himself became nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, what? To the point of death on a cross. Anyone, any person to ever grace this sin-scavenged, ruined planet, if anyone had reason, credentials to impress others, it was Jesus. But Jesus, from beginning to end, from the manger to the cross, to the empty tomb, is clothed in humility. He gives glory to the Father and becomes the atoning sacrifice of sin for us. See, the virtue of humility points us to Jesus, who not only models humility, but notice, invites us to grow in the virtue of humility by taking up his yoke of apprenticeship and learning from Jesus how to live our lives like him if he were us. Jesus not only lives inside the virtue ethic that Plato and Aristotle taught, he teaches it and he models it in his own life and says of himself, in the greatest sense of transparency, I am gentle and humble of heart. The virtuous life of humility is not about puffing ourselves up. It is not about drawing attention to ourselves, but putting our attention on God. Which leads us to the third expiration. Because the most powerful antidote to the vanity an enticement, and enslavement of vainglory is the spiritual discipline of secrecy. That may be a different concept to you, but what is it? What is the spiritual discipline of secrecy? In his outstanding book, I highly commend anything he's ever written. Dallas Willard, who is a philosopher, he's now with the Lord, who's a philosopher at USC, a wonderful Christian, he wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And Dallas describes this spiritual discipline this way. He says, it is our abstaining from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known. And Dallas writes with extraordinary genius and wisdom these words. One of the greatest fallacies of our faith, actually one of the greatest acts of unbelief, is the thought that our spiritual acts and virtues need to be advertised to be known. The frantic efforts of religious personages, that means people that are religious, pastors, leaders, and groups, parachurch organizations, churches, to advertise and certify themselves is a stunning revelation of their lack of substance and faith. Secrecy rightly practiced enables us to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God. We allow him to decide when our deeds will be known, when our lights will be, or light will be noticed. Secrecy at its best teaches love and humility before God and others. At its core, the discipline of secrecy 
helps us tame the ravenous hunger we all have, individually and collectively and institutionally for fame, for justification, for approval and applause, or just the attention of others. The discipline of secrecy keeps us from, focused on lives of self-promotion and exaggeration. Perhaps it is the most prominent vice Jesus ever addresses in the Bible. It certainly is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls the religious leaders on the carpet for motivation fueling their religious practices. These practices are good in themselves. They are disciplines like prayer, fasting, and generous giving. But they become corrupted by vainglory. In Jesus' sermon, he tells his disciples that the vice of vainglory is overcome by one way, the spiritual discipline of secrecy. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches on this essential spiritual discipline of secrecy. In chapter 6, verses 1 and following, I will read it carefully, listen. Jesus says, with the strongest language in the original text, beware, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus makes the point that vainglory does good things often for the wrong reasons. And Jesus tells us in this text, there are three considerations that the spiritual discipline of secrecy addresses. And like I did last week, I'm going to give you three words. I want you to remember them. Last week, we looked at three R's. This one is three A's, okay? The discipline of celebration, we looked at the R's. The discipline of secrecy, there are three A's. The first one, and these are all in the text, Audience, applause, and award, or reward. Same translation. Audience, applause, and award. First audience. Jesus says, you'll notice in the text, beware of doing good things for the wrong reason. Notice the text, of being seen by others. So the discipline of secrecy, friends, helps us to pursue becoming good and not just looking good by keeping the right audience in front of us. Our audience of one, which is God himself. When we engage in the discipline of secrecy, what we do is we remove the enticement of the audience of many around us from the crowd's approval and the crushing and enslaving opinion of others. In secrecy, there is no human watching to applaud us. That's the idea. So stop and think with me for a moment. How would this discipline look in your life this week? What would it look like to live each day before an audience of one? The discipline of secrecy first has the consideration and the calibration of the right audience, but secondly, the right applause. Jesus gives the example of charitable giving in the text, but done in such a way that draws attention to the giver so that, notice the text, we may be praised by others. That idea is... It's applause. 
And it's not accidental. The vice of vainglory can attach itself to many things, but it's not unusual in acts of philanthropy. And all the power and all that comes with it. See, the discipline of secrecy keeps us from basking in the applause or approval of others, and it focuses our attention on the applause that matters, the applause of God. So the discipline of celebration or discipline of secrecy has first the right audience. Secondly, the right applause. And third, the right award or reward. Jesus says the vice of vainglory brings us reward. It does. <laughs> That's why it's so appealing. It feels good to bask in the approval of others. But it's short-lived and fleeting. But on the other hand, the spiritual discipline of secrecy brings great reward. A reward that comes from God himself. A reward that is long-lasting and immeasurable in joy and in satisfaction. See, it's not that seeking a reward is bad intrinsically. It's not. Or even celebrating our achievements. It's not the size of the stage we're on. What is perilous to our souls and to others is when we seek rewards in the wrong way with the wrong motive. The spiritual discipline of secrecy confronts the vice of vainglory that entices all of us and it helps us recalibrate the right audience, the right applause, and pursuing the right rewards or awards. See, in every vice and in every virtue, the path from vice to virtue is paved with one thing, and that's spiritual disciplines. So this morning, can we take a few moments to reflect on our lives? To look into that makeup mirror? Allow the Spirit of God to illuminate our hearts? What do you see? Not someone next to you. What do you see in your life? What do I see in mine? How is the crushing vice of vainglory hindering your spiritual formation in Christ-likeness? How is it undercutting your emotional well-being, your relationship with others? At the heart of the discipline of secrecy are three probing questions I would like you to write down and remember and reflect on this week. They follow these three A's which Jesus teaches in the text in his famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. Audience, applause, and award. First question, what audience am I living before? What audience am I living before? We will never escape the vice of being glory, friends, until we begin living before the right audience. So what audience are you living before? And how do you know it? Think for a moment about this past week. Would you just, in your own mind and heart, who have you been most concerned about pleasing? Most about impressing? Your friends at school? Your boss? Your coach? Your colleagues at work? Your children? Your neighbors? What? Who comes to your mind? Or have you been most concerned about pleasing God? Jesus is the one who's approved on applause and unconditional love and acceptance you and I cannot live without. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died to make it possible for you and me to be forgiven and given brand new life. 
And being forgiven means our broken relation with God has been healed. And now through grace, we have been given the gift of being known and loved unconditionally. What the Father said of Jesus, the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. If you have embraced Christ, you embrace the gospel, God says that to you. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, or my beloved daughter. See, the gospel uniquely makes it possible for us to live not before the audience of many, but the audience of one. And living before an audience of one frees you from the greatest enslavement of being driven by the opinions of others. Rebecca DeYoung writes brilliantly in Glittering Vices these words. Vainglory is a cheap substitute for true fulfillment of the human desire to be profoundly known by another person. To be known by name for one who one for who one truly is, and to be loved just that way. God promises to fill that deep desire to be known, to be acknowledged, to be accepted with unconditional love before we make any effort to bolster approval ratings for ourselves. God has already freely given us what we need. The good news of the gospel is transformational. The good news of the gospel is the only hope to escape the vice of vainglory in your life and mine. Because in Christ, you are fully loved and unconditionally accepted. We know we are receiving the approval and applause of God himself. And because of that, the enticement to seek the approval and applause of others loses its gravitational tug on our hearts. What audience are you living before? Secondly, whose applause are you seeking? Whose favorable opinion do you most care about? Think about that. At home? In class? In that meeting at work, are you drawing attention to yourself and your accomplishments, or are you drawing attention to others and their accomplishments? See, where we look for applause is often tied into what we boast about, where we find our significance and security. The prophet Jeremiah said what we boast in. Boasting doesn't have to just be verbal. It can be internal. Jeremiah says, let not the wise person boast of their wisdom. Let not the strong person boast of their might. Let not the rich person boast in their riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. In what? That they know and understand me, that I am the Lord, who practices loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Jeremiah reminds us that true applause that we are seeking is found in a growing relational intimacy with God. So what are you boasting about? Where are you looking for your applause from others? Your children, grandchildren? Your popularity, your career success? And are you exaggerating your accomplishments and successes to feel good about yourself and look good to others? And let me ask you, when you encounter another, per- another person, do you immediately start talking about yourself? What audience are you living before? What applause are you seeking? What rewards rewards are you pursuing? See, the discipline of secrecy helps us to get the right rewards in mind. Jesus tells this amazing parable or story in Matthew 25, and he describes two financial managers. Two or three, two of them live before an audience of one, And they cultivate relational intimacy and vocational stewardship. The two money managers here at the end of the day by their master or employer 
Well done, right? Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your masters. Notice the relational intimacy. You have been faithful over a few things. I will entrust you with much more. Now enter into the joy of your master. Spiritual discipline of secrecy protects us from the vice of vainglory in our intimacy, in our relationships with others, and in our vocational callings. This week, as you work before an audience of one and seek his applause, whether that is paid or non-paid, that's not the issue. Your work is a contribution in your calling. The future reward Jesus offers you for being faithful in your vocational calling, whatever that is, and no matter how difficult it is, is to spur you on to the finish line of your life. In your place of work this week, again, whether you're paid or not, let me suggest three quick steps in embracing the spiritual discipline of secrecy this week. Try it. First, do a good thing where no one knows about it. Do a good thing where no one knows about it. Secondly, serve someone who can never pay you back. Serve someone who can never pay you back. And third, make it a priority to talk about others' accomplishments and not yours. See, when we puff ourselves up, we find ourselves hauntingly empty. So instead of focusing on looking good, let's pursue becoming good. Virtuous people and a virtuous community for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be transparent before you this morning. To ask those questions under your loving gaze in truth and grace. And may we pursue a virtuous life. Free us from the vice of vainglory, we pray. Amen.